Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in only a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website at subchina.com. SubChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the Belt and Road Initiative to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We've added some terrific new columnists, so be sure to check out the site. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Washington, D.C. Joining me from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, is retired Mexican wrestling champion Jeremy Goldcorn, who once ruled the ring from Chihuahua to Oaxaca as El Maiz Dorado. <laughs> Jeremy, you miss it, don't you? I mean, striking terror into other wrestlers, the lights, the roar of the crowds. <coughs> oh, man, you, you are you making it, me cough? Yeah, I do miss it terribly, especially today, because being an editor of a China news site sometimes is not pleasant. I had two emails that arrived within one minute of each other this morning, one accusing me of hating China and the other accusing me of being paid by the Communist Party. So, <laughs> yeah, I miss the wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing something right. I mean, that's what I always think. If I'm getting hate mail from both sides, then I'm doing something right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, unless you've been living in self-imposed media exile, um, you're certainly aware that the chief financial officer of China's largest telecoms equipment manufacturer and one of China's leading tech companies, Huawei, was arrested in Canada on a stopover on her way to Mexico, where Jeremy once ruled the rings. Uh, you're doubtless aware that this arrest, which happened in Vancouver, was carried out at the request of the U.S. government and that it happened just days before Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping met for a working dinner in Buenos Aires at the G20. The arrest predictably set off a firestorm in China where it was immediately denounced as hostage-taking and certainly strengthened Beijing's conviction that the U.S. wants nothing more than to keep China down and that it will use whatever means necessary to prevent it from threatening American technological primacy. A few days after news of Meng's arrest broke, China apparently responded by taking some of its own hostages. Two Canadians, Michael Korvig of the International Crisis Group, a policy NGO, and Michael Spaver, who was living in Dandong and was something of an unofficial freelance Western diplomat to North Korea. Yeah, I guess there's a third one now that we just are seeing news of, uh, a third arrest. That's right. Just, name yet. just yeah. last night, um, the uh, Global Affairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Ministry, said that there was a third Canadian detained, but there was no further information or any confirmed link with the other two. Hmm. Well, what to make of all of this? I mean, one major set of questions that have come up throughout and will doubtless continue to come up involves issues of law. And who better to shed some light on at least certain legal aspects of this headline-dominating spectacle than Julian Koo, Maurice A. Dean, Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law at Hofstra University. He joins us for the first time on Seneca and joins us from Hofstra on Long Island. Julian, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Jeremy. Julian, what was your initial reaction when you learned that Meng Wanzhou had been arrested in Vancouver? Was it your sense that the gloves had come off and the U.S. acting through Canada was really turning up the heat? You know, I, um, I, I didn't initially have that reaction because uh, the U.S. arrests a lot of people <laughs> for various things. I know that Huawei is a special case, but I guess I didn't appreciate just how big a deal it would be. So my initial reaction was, well, they just, you know, um, going after someone for... Uh, violating U.S. sanctions laws. That's happened before. But quickly I realized just watching Twitter that, <laughs> and w watching social media that it was a bigger deal um, and mm -hmm. that it, especially the reaction from people both here in the States but also especially from people in China that showed me that this is a much bigger deal and it's, it's a huge deal actually. Julian, you published a piece not long afterward uh, in the very excellent Lawfare blog uh, where you've written before, about Meng's detention. And you pushed back against certain claims that are being made by people in Beijing or, or speaking, if not in Beijing's or on Huawei's behalf, uh, then still quite critical of what uh, Washington had done, critical of the detention, critical of what the Canadians had done. Uh, can, you, can you go through what those claims were and what it is that you think that people had gotten wrong about this? You don't need to you know, cite names of individuals, Jeffrey Sachs, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, um, I had some thoughts about this, but 
um, you know, I was mostly thinking about it from a legal perspective, that mm-hmm. um, thoughts that it was legally illegitimate. I think there's a lot of claims out there. And, I, you know, my sort of beat is to sort of think about the law and how, you know, it intersects with policy. And people, I think, were overstating or misunderstanding the, the legal nature here. Um, like I said, it's not that unusual to punish people for violating sanctions or for actually what happened here, which is a little less common in this context, but bank fraud is a very common type of criminal prosecution in the United States. So what bothered me about the commentary, especially from folks here in the States, was that uh, there's this sort of thread that this is somehow illegitimate because it was about Iran sanctions and it occurred or it had to do with regulating um, Huawei's activities outside the United States. And I think I, and I wanted to push back to try to clarify that actually, as it was revealed, you know, she was charged with uh, bank fraud, which, as I mentioned, is a very common prosecution, a very serious crime in the United States. Um, and that also even uh, violating Iran's sanctions, the, the, the connection here to the United States is that Huawei was and relies upon a lot of U.S. origin goods for its products. And part of the deal is, which they commit to when they buy these goods, is that they don't resell them to countries right, that right. the U.S. has said, we don't want you to sell it to. So that's that was the main thing I wanted to push back on to clarify. This is not that unusual. This is not a, a super political case in the sense that it had never been done before from a legal perspective. Right. And then the one thing that bothered me on the Chinese government's reaction was this claim that there's a violation of due process, which was a much more absurd claim I just, that doesn't even need to be pushed back again, but did need to be because I noticed a lot of people in Chinese social media were buying this idea that she was somehow mistreated or treated unfairly in Canadian courts. Um, Julian, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, but uh, I have to think Al Capone was arrested for tax evasion, as is widely known. That's what they got him on, but that's obviously not the real reason he was public enemy number one. So with Meng Wanzhou and Huawei, I mean, irrespective of the fact that the charge was bank fraud and not directly about violations of American sanctions, wouldn't one have to be pretty naive to believe that there aren't deeper political motivations here? Isn't it the case that at the bottom, this is exactly what it looks like, a blow against China motivated by competitive concerns over one of its national champions and the huge prize it stands to win in the coming rollout of 5G and by national security concerns over the access that Huawei would effectively give Beijing to data on global 5G networks? Yeah, look, I I don't um, deny that there's a massive public or national security concern among folks in the U.S. national security establishment. I don't have any you know, way to tell if that's a legitimate concern or not. But clearly people in the U.S. government are worried about it and are worried about Huawei and hear a lot about this. I guess what I would say, though, is that if you think about it, there are other legal means they could have used to go after Huawei, if they, which are a lot easier than what they're doing here. <laughs> because as I, as I tried to point out in some other of my comments, if you prosecute someone, first you have to extradite her, then you got a prosecutor, and the standard, the legal standard for prosecuting her is going to be very high. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. She has, uh, so she could even be sort of sort of guilty, but uh, if you can't really prove it to a jury in a way that sort of is, is clearing this very high legal standard, then you're not going to win your case. So it's kind of a high risk to go after, to make a criminal case against an individual person who's very hmm. wealthy and can fight back with as many lawyers. Whereas, as they did with ZTE, it's actually much easier for the Commerce Department to just go after them on the civil standard and say, you're violating, um, you know, our sanctions laws. And we're just going to cut you off from the, cut you off in the U.S. market. That's, uh, there's no jury, there's no trial. You don't have to prosecute that person. You don't have to worry about all these complications with extradition. And it seems like if they had that evidence against Huawei, I don't see, if they wanted to shut down Huawei, that would be the much easier way to go. So I think it's a combination of the fact that they clearly are concerned about Huawei, but they, they came upon this evidence, and the evidence led them to her, because it's unusual to have her personally involved in this case. Sure, I, I mean, just to repeat myself, I'm, I'm sure it's about Huawei and national security, but it's also about the evidence they had that they didn't have against other companies, and, you know, they have other mechanisms they can use if they want to just go after Huawei. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, it strikes me that, I mean, let's look at Beijing's response to this so far. Uh, it's like Beijing is trying to kind of have it both ways and in a way that doesn't seem really 
tenable to me. On the one hand, they want to continue with trade talks. They want to kind of go along to get along. And they appear to take at face value the U.S. claim that the the two tracks, you know, the arrest of Hmong and the trade negotiations are, are separable, if not separate. Uh, but with the other side of their mouth, they seem to be, you know, insisting that, that the whole thing was entirely political, that this was hostage-taking. And, you know, they've responded, as Jeremy is saying, with you know, some of their own hostage-taking. So far, it's just been only against Canada, but, you know, not against the U.S. Uh, do I have this right, Julian? Uh, or set me straight here if, if I've gotten it wrong. How would you characterize Beijing's response so far? Yeah, so it's interesting because they, you're right. They could have uh, pulled out of trade talks if they, you know, they, but they agreed, for, and I think for their own reasons, to try to keep the trade talks separate from this case. Um, and what they decided to do instead of, uh, you know, hurting themselves, I think, because they obviously need some sort of trade agreement as much as the U.S. does, if not more. So they decided to separate it out and let the U.S. separate it out, even though I think they, their public statements would suggest that they, you know, why would they you know, be willing to do that. So the strategy they've adopted instead is to punish Canada or the Blame Canada campaign and to really put pressure on Canada, both in public statements by criticizing Canada's legal system and then also taking these hostages, which has got to be some sort of really scary signal to – Canada, the Canadian government, look, we're, we're going to go after you. We're going to punish you. We're going to exact costs on you. We're going to make you unpopular with your people. Hmm. Um, and that's their strategy of separating it. Because I think they need the trade talks, and they don't want that to be derailed either. And so this is a useful way for them to push back without losing the trade talks. Um, Julian, do you recall any precedent for this uh, in China where the reaction to uh, another country involved this apparent hostage taking. Yeah, I don't I, I I can't think of a hostage taking. What made what this case made me think of is the way they reacted to the TAD, um, the South Korea and installation of this TAD, um, which I can't remember what it stands for, but it's a high the altitude terminal high altitude um, air defense. Mi- yeah. Right. And so it's a it's a high tech missile defense system that the US and South Korea decided South Korea decided to install. It's a US system which Beijing thought threatened them. And so instead of really going after the US, which was the one that wanted it in there, they punished South Korea and they had hmm, this sort yeah. of tacit, secret, under the table economic boycott of South Korea and they made all these angry public statements. And they didn't go after the US actually, um, at, le- at least in the same way. And it actually sort of worked. It was kind of a long, slow process, but South Korea really did feel the pressure and they eventually sort of uh, pulled back on the TAD deployment. So I think you know that's that's a strategy. I mean, this is, I think, a good... And maybe they think this will work, too, with Canada. It's like, go after Canada. And I think, it you know, if I'm Canadian, I'm thinking to myself, why am I going to get involved and put my citizens at risk on behalf of the United States? It's a good strategy for them to try to divide Korea from the United States, or in this case, Canada from the United States, at least a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'd have to think I would advise the same thing if I were sitting at that table. Uh, Not only because, you know, it's, it's easier to exert pressure on the small country, uh, but also because we want something quite concrete right now from the big country, and it, it just it seems a pretty rational strategy at this point. Not the hostage taking, but you know the application of pressure on Canada. Uh, I think the right. hostage. It's taking, a moral. It's a moral, but rational. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. The hostage taking is rational. Exactly. It's, it's very rational. Yeah. It's just well, cold I mean, and brutal. I don't know. Actually, I I personally think that it, it was a, a terrible mistake. That you know they actually. I mean, they could have appealed kind of successfully to global public opinion if they sort of spun this as extraterritoriality on the part of the United States of, of, you know, just a pure political hostage taking. They've really undermined themselves, I think, by, by you know, stooping to that. Anyway, uh, as we said, the, the White House line is that trade and law enforcement are these two separate tracks. Uh, but there was a Reuters piece uh, that was based on an interview with President Trump that came out on, on December 11th. Uh, that was the Tuesday, the, the day, in fact, that bail was granted. Uh, as the president saying that he'd interfere, or he might interfere. He said, let me quote him here, if I think it's good for the country, if I think it's good for what will be certainly the largest trade deal ever made, which is a very important thing, what's good for national security, I would certainly intervene if I thought it was necessary. Uh, Okay, I mean, part of me says, yeah, he kind of, there were leading questions, and Trump is a sucker for a leading question. Uh, One FT correspondent named Hudson Lockett, who, by the way, he used to be our, our intern back in 2011. He said, you know, asking 
Trump to break a norm, you know, giving him a leading question like this where he's asked to break a norm is like throwing a stick of lit dynamite to a toddler. It's <laughs> 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 kind of true. <laughs> All right, Hudson. Uh, but, you know, what do we know about this, about this, this intervention, uh, this, you know, this threat to interview? I mean, doesn't it completely undermine the... Uh, what you've been arguing with a lot of people are arguing that this shouldn't just doesn't have political hair on it that it's a neat and clean legal case yeah so i, I have some thoughts on it. it is i think you're right it's um my impression is that he was kind of led into it but you know, he shouldn't have been right not, right he, and he does under, he does undermine he does undermine the legal case by um by suggesting it's kind of a it's it's something that can be um, bargained with, right? Right, um, right? And in fact, I don't think the Chinese actually want that, actually, because I think they want to separate this out um, as well, because I think um, it's not a great, they don't want us to have something we can bargain with either. But I think that, so I think it's not, it's not great. It's, it's, it's bad for law enforcement. I'll just say one thing, though. It is kind of true, though, and this is the weird part about this. Extradition, unlike a prosecution, like if she was already in U.S. custody, it's a much more serious thing for the for the president to say, "Oh, I will, I'll just tell them to drop the case, right, for trade right. purposes." Because for the reasons we're just, we're thinking, you know, we've been discussing domestically in the United States, you know, the, the president should not be interfering in a domestic criminal investigation. The one thing that makes this a little weird is the fact that it's an extradition request, and that right. part is a little more political because you could have a case, but the U.S. government actually might not request another country to extradite them. It's not an automatic thing. There's a political process within the U.S. government that they go through to think about, well, maybe this country, maybe we don't want to make that request. Maybe we'll make it later at a better time when our relations with them are better. So there's a little bit of that going on. So there is, in fact, more wiggle room because not so much to drop the prosecution, but he could more legitimately, I think, say, well, the foreign affairs reasons, I'll ask Canada to, to drop the I'll, – I'll withdraw the extradition request from Canada. Yeah, that's very right? good I think point. it might be too late now. But there are situations where, for instance, other countries will, you know, ask you ask the U.S. to, you know, to drop their requests because it's so unpopular. Like the U.K., the U.S. is always demanding hackers be turned over, and they fought them in U.K. courts, and they, you know, the public opinion in the U.K. might be – it was actually just la- uh, from two years ago, and he was uh, – Accused by the U.S. for of cyber hacking and the sought extradition. Ah, yeah, and, I, I know this guy. Um, and the so, case was uh, he fought it in, in U.K. courts and actually won and did not get extradited. So right. he actually won. But before that, the, this is actually Obama during the Obama administration. There's actually people calling on Obama to withdraw the request. And in theory, it's not as bad because it's just like well, okay for foreign affairs reasons, I'll I'll pull it back. Um, so, you know, there, there is a way to defend the president here, but it does undercut the strategy of saying this is not about trade. And so... What about, um, the, from the Canadian side, I mean, does this give them a reason to say there is a political taint, therefore uh, we cannot uh, agree to this extradition request? Yeah, good, good question. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it, it's just going to lead into something we can talk about. The, the treaty with Canada has a specific exception for what they call political offenses. So ah. um, Canada doesn't have an obligation to extradite anyone, and neither does the U.S. actually, to Canada, if the court deems it, or if Canada deems it to be um, a political offense um, by uh, the other side's charging with a political offense. Now, this sounds like it would apply, but actually, as it's been interpreted, the, these treaty sort of political offenses are a pretty narrow thing. So Usually it's like um, the idea behind it originally was, well, they're just trying to prosecute them because they're a political enemy, <laughs> right? So we want you to extradite them or they're a political dissident. And even though it's something that um, was a real crime in the country, um, we're not going to extradite because we think it's a, you know, it's a, they're really just, it's a political uh, dissident or political sort of matter. Right. And I was you know, looking at this and so it's, it's almost never works <laughs> as a defense in these, in these proceedings, but it's almost always raised. And I think... Certainly, I imagine Mung's lawyers will raise it because it was sort of gives a political taint to the U.S. request. You know, I think if you were to look at the way these provisions have been interpreted, it doesn't really apply because, you know, he didn't say that they're prosecuting her for political motives. In the way he was saying, well, maybe I'll be willing to, you know... Um, in the know, interest of preserving trade. And, right. right, in the interests of, you know, better relations with China. You know, of China, I'm willing to cut her a break. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's politically motivated in going after her. Um, but it, you know, certainly it does cast a pall and it makes it harder, which is why, generally speaking, presidents don't comment 
on these sorts of things um, because it, it w- could cause complications in the extradition proceedings. Generally speaking, presidents don't is um, a phrase we hear all too often these days. <laughs> but what do we actually know about who in the Trump administration knew what and when? Do we know who picked up the phone and called Ottawa to request the arrest? Or any other details? Do we know whether Trump knew this had happened at the time he sat down with Xi Jinping in Buenos Aires? So I don't have any inside information on that. And I don't think I've seen any reporting on it. I can tell you, though, how it's supposed to work. (laughs) And then we can sort of figure out whether or not... Because it's actually a kind of a bureaucratic process. So the way this is supposed to work is that it's generated by the prosecutor. So in this case, the prosecutor, which is actually here in Brooklyn, in Long Island, the prosecutor's based here... They have the evidence, and then what they have to do is they have to go make a request. They say, oh, we have this person we want to charge. And we're, ordinarily, they wouldn't have to get permission to charge someone they had evidence against. But now they have to extradite. They have to go to the Department of Justice in D.C. has an Office of International Affairs. <laughs> and you actually have to make a petition to them internally and ask them, oh, we want an extradition. We want to ask Canada, in this case, for extradition. The Office of International Affairs is this kind of little office in the Justice Department that's supposed to feel this. And they actually make sort of a political assessment as to, well, you know, and also legal assessment. Is this really a good case? What's the complication? What is our relations like with this country that we're going to make a request with? And then if they decide it's worth forwarding it to, they then take it to the Department of State, where they also go through this analysis, well, what's our foreign policy relationship with this country? And then the Department of State, um, or sometimes the office directly, I guess, will, will speak to make the request of the foreign country. Now, I'm told that what often happens is that there's an informal process where they'll say to the other country, like Canada, if we were to ask, <laughs> what right. would you say, <laughs> right? Uh, or, you know, since it's not public, no one's obligated to release this, they might just ask them, and Canada will sit on it, and, you know, um, and they could... They could have turned down lots of requests in the past. We'll never know about it, right? That, that informal so hypothetical the, conversation is is led by state then, right? So maybe yes. this Yes, and so is, the theory here is that state is supposed to lead this because it is a foreign policy matter, not just right, a legal right, law right. enforcement matter. But the Justice Department is the one that's – because we have, they're the ones with the evidence. And then Canada has, uh, you know, has their own process they're supposed to undertake to think about it. So – and Canada, my understanding of the Canadians is they seem pretty rigid. Like, if they think it meets the legal standard, they'll just go ahead and do it. So there's not much wiggle room for them. But they do have a little bit of a filter because it goes to their Ministry of Foreign Affairs first. And they might say, well, maybe we won't send it down to the Department of Justice until, at the, you know. So they do have a – they can always say no without us ever knowing about it, I think. Because the formal request is not necessarily made under the treaty, which triggers all the treaty provisions yet. So I think that's usually how this process is supposed to work. It's sort of like a – bureaucratic process, but with a little bit of sort of wiggle room among the different departments so that you're not putting a country in a bad position. So Canada, I think, is supposed to have a little room to think about this. And I think ideally, we gave them a chance to think about it and turn them down. But we obviously really wanted this to happen. So we could also may have pushed them um, and said, look, we really need this. Uh, you owe us, or maybe we'll give you something down the road. So that's sort of the internal process that's supposed to happen, I think. Uh, it doesn't sound like Trump was read in on this. I mean, I, I've right. So nor- he wouldn't normally be because right, it's a right. bureaucratic process. Now, the Department of State uh, probably should let the White House know, the National Security <laughs> Council know. Yeah. Um, uh, but they don't always do. I mean, I think they uh, – I don't think they're obligated to. Um, but probably for something like this, they probably should have told there's always someone at the National Security Council who's supposed to, you know, to – keep track of China stuff, right? They have right. all the staffers. Pottinger, so they may have told someone there. Um, but, you know, it's entirely possible that it was only after the Canadians said yes that they told them. And even then, they may not have. Because, um, you know, the, the government doesn't always work the way you think it should. Not every, The right hand doesn't always know what the left hand's doing. Um, and it, it actually so it's a, it's, it happened a, yes. a few days before we all found out about it, before Buenos Aires. I mean, or it, it, uh, it happened, what, maybe three or four days before, and, and she had requested a media blackout. Uh, is that my understanding? Is my understanding correct, that she had not yeah. asked that any of this get leaked? Uh, do we know her thinking, why she didn't want any of this to go out? I mean, was it because of the G20? I think that, my guess is that maybe she was hoping somehow... It would quietly go would away. Go, yeah, that they could settle this somehow, settle this with the court, and maybe some, make some settlement with the Canadians... Uh, before it went public and everyone sort of got in their corners and started shouting. And maybe she thought – and Huawei, I think, 
I bet was like, hey, we don't want to be <laughs> involved in this public firestorm. Let's just try to resolve this, um, you know. Um, and and, and under, under Canadian law, you have that right to do. Yeah, yeah I mean, Kaiser, I think that it's pretty clear what went on. I mean, Huawei hates media coverage. And <laughs> so you blame them. The first instinct is going to be, you know, shut everyone's mouths until it's impossible. Yeah, and, and Canadian law lets you have requests and, and be granted a publication ban in a way that we might not be able to do in the States. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I think that's also um, one reason why the Chinese would say, well, they didn't, there's no evidence, and they didn't explain what they did, and how come, and it was because she requested a media ban, which is, that's why it kind of frustrates me about the Chinese response, because they're jumping up and down and saying, mm. look how awful the Canadians are. They are. They're really just awful. Uh, I've seen this arrest, Julian. I've seen it described as unprecedented. Uh, but is it actually unprecedented? I mean, I can't remember who it was where, where I read about. But, you know, Oliver Schmitz, uh, after the whole diesel emission scandal at VW, he was jailed for seven years, right? Uh, this isn't yeah, I mean, Yeah. Can you give some examples yeah, of other extradition cases for a national? Yeah, so, I mean, the U.S. has been going after people probably a little bit more in recent years. But I, one case stuck out to me. So back in 2016, um, the U.S. Uh, extradited a, a Chinese national um, from the U.K. for violating Iran sanctions. So that's why I kind of started. Essentially, he was yeah. selling goods to Iran. Now, they were, you know, maybe it sounds worse because it was like stuff that you could use in nuclear, um, in nuclear technology. But... It was, you know, it's it's roughly the same legal principle. And so they sentenced him to nine years. Um, and uh, that was only two years ago. But there wasn't any press about it. And, you know, I think, um, you know, and as far as I know, the Chinese didn't uh, protest. In recent years, they also have been much more aggressive about extraditing people for um, uh, antitrust violations, which is kind of obscure. But uh, the U.S. will say, well, you're really from abroad. You're interfering in our, you know, our domestic market. So we'll... We'll, we'll prosecute you, and actually we could go after you, for even a foreign executive, if we can extradite you for, uh, for antitrust violations. Usually you just go after the company, but sometimes they get the executive. There's one interesting case I thought of, I found, which was a British guy was, um, I'm sorry, an Israeli guy was alleged to have been um, defrauding a U.S. Um, foreign aid program. Um, and so they actually got Bulgaria to arrest him while he was in Bulgaria and they <laughs> him and they charged him. So, I mean, it, this is not – that's why it's, it's not super crazy to go after people um, through this process um, for these – even foreign executives and punishing them if they violate U.S. law. The U.S. is admittedly more aggressive than probably other countries about enforcing its laws in this way. But the U.S. also has more – international interest and exposure than the average country. So, yes, yeah. you know, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely something that other countries probably wouldn't do, I think, as aggressively, but it's not something that's s- totally unprecedented. And again, I do think that the fact they have this evidence about her personally saying stuff and presenting stuff was kind of a, what drove this uh, prosecution as well, because it's not com- often that you have that kind of evidence about a corporate executive's personal involvement. Like that. Yeah, well, we'll talk about what specifically she's alleged to have done in just a sec. Yeah, let's talk about that. But first, uh, Julian, can you talk about the actual court proceedings in Vancouver? Did anything about them surprise you? Were you surprised that she was granted bail or at the amount that was set or anything else? So let me give my usual disclaimer that I'm not a Canadian lawyer. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but the proceedings are not super different. Um, so uh, the they had a, what essentially was a bail hearing, which is the first thing. The only thing that surprised me about it, other than the fact that they had this weird publication ban originally, um, was that they got kind of got into the merits during the bail hearing, meaning that the lawyers would, you know, the, the lawyer for the Crown or the Canadian prosecutor had to explain the basis for the arrest and and then uh, and so the, and they of course then explain why they thought bail should not be granted and then the defense um, attorney was like you know essentially got into the merits well this isn't really a serious crime and what they were arguing about was you know how serious a crime is it really <laughs> that she needs to be sort of uh, uh, put into um, not granted bail and that's why they were arguing about it but it was a little unusual to get into the merits of the case I think at the bail stage um, in terms of granting bail. That's a very discretionary decision. Um, and, you know, I think at first glance, like, well, you know, what could really constrain her <laughs> from leaving? 
Um, but I think that, you know, they, the, her lawyer made the case that she kind of has a lot of interests overseas and in Canada as well. And it would be a very difficult decision for her to just, if she jumped bail, she could never come back to Canada again or the United States or any country Canada has an extradition uh, treaty with and really make her an outlaw, right, in the world. And she's not someone who wants to be that, right? So she might want to just ride this out and, tr- and see if she could beat the case. And so given the amount of money she put up, I guess it seems reasonable uh, to, to, to grant bail. And, and also the other thing to think about, Canada seems to move very slowly, or at least Vancouver does, so they're not going to go back to this until February. So it would be a pretty big imposition to put her in jail for <laughs> all yeah, the way through yeah. the holidays just because they can't get a court date. It does seem a little odd, and, and that would be probably a little extreme. So, Julian, let's talk now about the specifics of the, the allegations involving Huawei. Uh, so bank fraud an entity called Skycom and HSBC. Uh, what do we know about the, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why? Uh, have you had a chance to look at, for example, the PowerPoint presentation that's been going around, uh, this translation that was provided by Huawei to HSBC, and what have you made so far of the argument uh, that this amounted to bank fraud? I mean, I guess what struck me is that we don't know the evidence in terms of what they have behind this, because the key fact here is, well, let me just sit back up. So the first thing about the real importance of that PowerPoint and the reason why they're circulating it, or I don't know how it got out, but it's it was it has her, she's personally attached to that PowerPoint, right? And, and I don't even think she's that's denying. Right. Her lawyer didn't say she didn't do it. Like, So so she's saying, I did this. I, that's, that's me. I did it. I did actually make that presentation to HSBC executives. And so that's, that's why I think there was clearly enough to arrest her, because it's not like she's denying that she did any of the things they said she did. What seems to be the key fact here is whether Skycom really was controlled by Huawei and was being used by Huawei to secretly get stuff to Iran in a way that they're not supposed to, and uh, whether she knew that at the time when she made that presentation. Because fraud is essentially you're lying <laughs> for the purpose of getting something out of the other side, and you knew you're lying. You're not just sort of... And so. And so she would have to know that what she was saying was untrue and that she would get some benefit out of it, which she did. I mean, they lent allegedly hundreds of millions of dollars through this um, company, which eventually made its way to finance transactions with Iran. So it's a serious amount of money. And she personally made the presentation. The, the tricky part and the evidence that I haven't seen, and I think what, what would have to, have to happen at trial is the U.S. government's got to show, reveal their evidence as to why they think – Skycom, Skycom is, really Huawei. is yeah, controlled yeah. by Huawei, right? And uh, that's 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 where the, I think, at least as far as I can tell so far, that's where the fraud case will will really turn on. And and then I guess the other defense she'll raise is, well, you know, I didn't I didn't know it was controlled by Huawei, but that's hard to imagine if she's the CFO of Huawei, right? Right, right. And right. that she so it, it, I think it, it, the name of the game here is that can they prove that Skycom really is controlled by Huawei? You know, as you guys know, I mean, I spent a lot of years in the internet sector in China, and this sounds sort of familiar to me. You know, there were there's another class of companies uh, that create these entities called variable interest entities (VIEs) who actually hold the licenses that foreign invested enterprises would not be able to hold to operate internet companies in China. There are a couple of other sectors in which this happens. Uh, this is something that has you know, been in play since the late 90s when Cena, you know, was the first company to go listing abroad, uh, we're able to do this. So the actual company that you buy stock in is a, a Cayman Island or, or BVI registered company. It's not the operating company in China. Uh, or it, 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 it and that, that operating company in China is actually uh, operating through, because it's still for, it's all foreign invested, it's operating through this variable interest entity. But everyone knows these VIEs are directly controlled by the companies. It feels like if they decide that you know, these are effectively the same thing, wouldn't this threaten this whole VIE structure on which the whole you know, foreign-invested internet sector in China has been predicated? I, I wonder about that. <laughs> so, yes, I have, two, I have two thoughts about this. First... Um, she actually didn't, unlike the VIE scenario where I think everyone knows, and it's not like they're trying to hide it. They, you know, It's controlled by these foreign investors, so it's not like a secret. She actually 
in her slide said that there is no Huawei control or involvement in this company. So she, that would be the lie, so to speak. <laughs> uh, she's not saying, well, we controlled it, but it's separately. She's actually saying we literally don't control this. And she also knew why they were asking, because they were asking, because they hey, we have this uh, HSBC is like, hey, we just recently had to pay a billion dollars for violating sanctions and other things. And so <laughs> we'd really like some confidence that this is not <laughs> a Huawei company. And so she knew why they were asking. And she said, well, we don't control it. So it's not like, you know, she's like saying, oh, you know, we, we control it. Everyone understands it. So that's why it's a little different. The other thing is that, and I, I th- is that, and this is actually something that comes up when I teach um, corporate law sometimes, which is for uh, for tax purposes or for regulatory purposes, uh, you know, the law will sometimes allow companies to be structured in different ways, and that's why we do it, for, especially for tax or for regulatory purposes or right, for securities, right. raising money purposes, right, which is um, – and or for corporate governance purposes. Like we're not really confident about the way Chinese corporate law works. So let's organize it in a different way. Um, ha- having said that, um, what's – what there are also a, a long tradition of what we call – treating corporations as not real, we call piercing the corporate veil in the United States, which is we say, look, we know technically it's a separate corporation, but because they committed a tort or crime, we're going to pierce the corporate structure and go go to the shareholders and hold them responsible. So the paradigmatic case in the United States are these tax New York taxi cases where Historically, every taxi was its own corporation, <laughs> and so there would be some guy behind them who ran, like who had like fifty corporations. So every time the taxi got an accident, they'd have their, they had, uh, they had no assets in this corporation and almost no insurance. This is like a long time ago, and you'd sue them. They're like, "Well, sorry, <laughs> it's just this corporation." And so there's these court cases that says, "No, we're going to pierce the veil because these corporations are not." They're technically created, but they're not really separate. And so we're going to go after the shareholders who are really behind them. And sometimes this also works where in the U.S. cases, they've gone after um, parent corporations of subsidiaries. So uh, Dow, there are these famous cases involving these breast implants that uh, were causing injuries. And there's a subsidiary, and then there's a parent. And the court's like, yeah, we'll pierce through to the parent in some circumstances. So... The, it, it it's not as simple. As, it, I don't think it would necessarily mean that you can't use a separate corporation or these sort of VIEs for other purposes. But it's probably true that for tort law purposes or criminal law purposes, meaning where you cause injury to other people, courts are much less likely to be um, willing to say, oh, you said create a separate corporation, therefore it's all separate. They, they're much more, uh, at that point, more likely to say, well, in extreme cases where there's a serious crime or, or a serious injury cause, we might in some cases uh, pierce the corporate veil. But again, I'm not, I'm not even sure that's what happened here because I think she actually the, – the key thing is that she kind of told them <laughs> that it really was separate. So if they're able to prove that it's not, that's what the law is. Right, right, right. Makes I mean, if she just said, if she just said, "Hey, the, they, we really do kind of control them," they couldn't charge her with 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 fraud, right? <laughs> because she told them the truth. So, Julian, what should we be thinking about as the major factors in determining whether Meng is actually extradited to the United States, and do you think she will be? So, there are two issues, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of a lawyer-focused guy. So, there's the legal arguments she's going to make in court in Canada, and my understanding is that. Yeah, the court in Canada will conduct a pretty searching review. There are two things that she's likely to raise uh, under the treaty. Um, One is something called the dual criminality um, argument, which is the treaty says that you can only be extradited to the other country if you're being prosecuted for something that would also be a crime in in Canada, for instance. So in here, the prosecution in Canada has got to say, well, look, if she did this and she's under Canadian law, it would also be a crime. So... She might argue that, and that's why they charge her with a fraud, I assume, because it might be a little tricky, the sanctions. But the fraud is, you know, that's a, that they might say, well, that's not the same type of fraud. It's not exactly the same. And so, you know, you can't extradite her. The other ground would be, we talked earlier, that this is a political prosecution and I'm, being tr- I'm going to be extradited on a political offense and you should not do that right, right. for that reason. The third would be that I wouldn't get a fair trial. That one's going to be harder to do because Canada extradites people to the U.S. all the time. And but she could also say, well, look, it's a sign that you know maybe I won't in this case because it's so political. So I expect her to make those arguments in court. I'm not a Canadian lawyer, so I think in the U.S. court, I doubt they would succeed. But I don't know. Maybe the Canadians are are a little different. I would just say the Canadians, um, the Canadian 
prosecutors had to make that decision before they actually uh, charged her and that they, they have to make an assessment of whether they thought she was extraditable before they went and, and arrested her because they don't want to be in a situation where they lose right before the court. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, I would guess that they think they have a pretty good case because the standard's not she's guilty. The standard is, <laughs> is it something that would be uh, something that's kind of, we could arrest someone for here in Canada if she had done so under Canadian law. The other thing I'll just say is that um, even if the court says she's extraditable, there is a last gasp safeguard under Canadian law, which is that she, the Ministry of Ju- Minister of Justice in Canada has discretion to just say, I know the court says we can extradite her, but we're not going to do it like, for just any mm-hmm. reason at all. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, a, and so that, that's where the political element comes in. And maybe that's why China is pushing so hard on Canada, saying, look, I know you have this court thing, but we're gonna <laughs> we make know cost, that you can yeah. still decide not to do this. Remember how much we matter to you, Canada. Don't, <laughs> don't forget how important Canada is, uh, China is to Canada economically and other things. And by the way, we have three hostages. So just... <laughs> You know, we know you have the power to hold. So that there is that last element. And so that's where the political game and the pressure will be put on the Minister of Justice and the Canadian government. Thanks. Julian, uh, walk us through here. What's so, Huawei supposedly done? I mean, I, I know there's sort of this re-export of U.S.-made components that were banned for sale to Iran. But I guess what I'm, I'm not totally clear on is when did those particular export bans, these, these particular sanctions, go into effect? And... Uh, I'm not clear on whether the lifting of certain sanctions under the Iran nuclear deal could have had any effect. Can you can you help us sort through that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the the Iran nuclear deal, as far as I can tell, wouldn't have had an effect because under either the um, when the sanctions were lifted or not, you have to get a license. Um, so even when they lifted the sanctions, you still had to get a license from the U.S. government. They would just give you the license, whereas before they wouldn't, <laughs> um, to, to, uh, to re-export stuff. And even then, they generally don't give um, allow you to re-export stuff, because the Iran nuclear deal really just sort of um, was about the U.S. promising not to go after foreign companies <laughs> um, and uh, for selling their own stuff to Iran. <laughs> whereas um, here, this is the more standard. The U.S. has been for many years saying that we don't want any U.S. goods, especially except for certain categories, to go to Iran. Um, and one of those ca- uh, categories that they don't want, that they said should not go to Iran, are telecommunications. Right, um, right. Uh, telecommunications, networking materials, and things like that, products. And so I think under the Iran deal or before, it would have still been a violation. Um, for. And I think, uh, so I don't think that's, that's the problem here for them. And so Huawei, I think, is doing something... Not that different from what ZTE was sort of accused and sort of admitted to doing, which is, and so I think it's essentially the idea is the U.S. says we have all this telecom stuff, U.S. origin stuff, you know, and the deal is that it doesn't go to certain countries. One of those countries is Iran. The other one, by the way, just in case you're wondering, is Cuba, North Korea. Like right. there are certain countries on our list, so we just we don't want our stuff going there, and we'll punish you if you do. And I'll just say this for Huawei knows this, right? They have armies oh, yeah, of yeah, lawyers yeah. and they have statements. So, they, so they're kind of on the hook in the sense that they kind of know this and when they bought the goods. And so to some degree, I think they – to say that they kind of are being unfairly treated because they're being hit with the sanctions is, is a little unfair, I think, here. Mm-hmm. I mean, not unfair, but it's like wrong, I think. It's, I mean, they, they knew what they're getting into. So They knew what they were getting into. <laughs> when they started buying stuff from the U.S., right? Right, right, right. right. Um, Julian, on Friday, you tweeted that there were two important unanswered legal questions. One, where did Meng make her presentation to HSBC? And two, whether Meng sent the slides in her PowerPoint to HSBC offices in the United States. Can you explain why the answers to these two questions matter? Yeah, I mean, I'm to some degree, I'm speckling a little bit here. And it's always dangerous to do on Twitter, I guess. Um, but I think the one issue will be... And yet we all do. <laughs> and yet we do, yeah. right, um, is, is the territoriality issue. So um, because they're not charging her with um, sanctions violations, they're charging her with fraud. And so the question is, um, did is the action of fraud within the United States uh, jurisdiction? And you know, HSBC has a U.S. subsidiary. And so generally speaking, you can, as a country like the United States passed a law saying, if you commit a crime against an American national, then um, we can prosecute you. Or if you commit a crime in America, <laughs> we can prosecute you. But generally, if, if she was 
committing a crime against a non-American not in America, then that's going to be a much harder case um, for the U.S. to sort of justify, I think, under international law and under its own laws. And so generally speaking, you need some sort of link for these sorts of fraud prosecutions. Um, so, um, you know, my question would be, and I just don't know the facts here, um, you know, was she to some degree talking to um, HSBC um, uh, in the United States? Now, part of this might be, well, maybe she was making a conference call presentation where the people on, on the call were in the United States. And all, but I bet she did it in Hong Kong or something like that or China. Mm-hmm. But arguably, if she's speaking and she knows she's speaking to U.S. executives in the United States as well, then I think there might be, you know, that's probably a territorial, enough of a hook for the U.S. to claim they have, ter- they have jurisdiction. Right. But what I worry about is that if she, suppose she did this in China and she was speaking only to the Chinese subsidiary of HSBC or some other bank, then, you know, maybe there's an argument that this is beyond the reach of U.S. law because there's no U.S. connection. Um, right, right. It seems right. unlikely, but it's worth, it's worth at least knowing, uh, finding out that fact. And then, or the other way is that she just sent, they emailed her and said, hey, we want to know what's going on. And they sent her and she emails it to them in the U.S. And that would probably be enough of a connection to get the fraud, the fraud claim. But it is a little unusual to sort of go after someone for fraud who's arguably who was not in the United States when she committed the fraud. Thanks, thanks, Julian. Let's let's wrap up by you know maybe you can give us a, a a sense for the predicament that Canada finds itself in right now. You know, sailing between Scylla and Charybdis right now. Uh, it can't be easy. It's uh, very much stuck between the proverbial rock and the hard place. So what, what's what's Canada thinking as this proceeds? <laughs> um, again, I, you know, I I I don't know. I mean, I think Canada Canada is in a tough spot. I think uh, legally they want to just, you know, follow their legal process. In this way, they're very much like the Americans, right? They say, we have a legal process. We have to see it out. We're a rule of law country. And so it's important that they do follow the legal process. But they have a lot at stake in terms of uh, being sort of um, punished, so to speak, by China. Um, There's so many areas where China has leverage over Canada. And I think it is, um, and and, and they throw the hostage thing on top of that. I can see this is a is, is a real problem. I mean, I I would be curious to see whether there are opinion polls which show Canadians are are not happy with this with this process. Because if I'm Canadian, I'm saying to myself, we're doing this thing at the request of the United States, and we're getting pummeled for it, <laughs> um, and our people are being threatened, right? And this is not even the first time. They, they arguably they took two Canadian um, folks a few years ago, and they kept them in jail for two mm, years, and they had to right. like dig them out for a previous um, extradition of another Chinese guy from Vancouver. So, I mean, the Canadians might say, look, I know we have a rule of law and legal process, but what are we getting out of this? Why do next time the U.S. calls, we'll just tell them, don't ask. <laughs> and I think maybe that's chi- that's China's strategy here, is it's to really create a disincentive for Canada to cooperate here. Um, and so I, I do think it's going to have an impact. I think that um, unless the U.S. can somehow figure out a way to make it up to Canada or to show Canada that we, the U.S. appreciates the cooperation and um, will help Canada out, I do think it'll be a, long, a long-term disincentive for future cooperation on cases like this, which I think is probably what China wants. Well, Julian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, let's go on to the recommendations section. But before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by Sup China. If you enjoy the Cynical Podcast, the other shows in the network like the fantastic Tech Buzz and China Econ Talk and the whole wide-ranging content on Sup China, then the best thing you can do to help us out is to sign up for Sup China Access. Your support makes it possible for us to bring all of this reporting, the conversations, the videos, the whole kit and caboodle. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you have for us this week? I have a book that uh, I've uh, start, just started. I'm about a third of the way through. Two Kinds of Time by Graham Peck, with an introduction by Robert A. Cap, Bob Cap. It's a, a book uh, written by a, a guy who spent, an American who spent uh, uh, time in China in the 1940s, and uh, he wrote up his observations and illustrated it. And it's just a, a wonderful book, and it, uh, it it has stood the test of time. So, yeah, two kinds of time. Oh, wow. That's the first I've heard of it. I, I do know Bob, and I, I wasn't aware that he had written an intro to this book. I'll check it out. Lend me your copy. <laughs> 
Sure. <laughs> Julian, what do you have for us this week? So this is a little out of left field. It's it's an old it's an, a book that was published in 2014 by Elizabeth Pisani. It's called Indonesia, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 a trial. It's kind of like a memoirs of a of a of a journal a UK journalist who was based in Indonesia for many years. And it was a great. I'd been to Indonesia a few years ago, and I read it. And someone told me to read it, and it was a really incredible sort of introduction, quick, short very readable narrative that introduced so many aspects of the country that I knew nothing about before I went there. And it reminded me of some of the old style, like books in the early 80s about China, like some you know, journalists would be able to introduce China in a very interesting narrative way to folks who knew nothing about it. And so I think this is a great uh, book, um, even though it's, you know, it came out in 2014, it's still, if you are ever going to Indonesia or want to think about Indonesia, it's a great sort of beginner's introduction. Yeah, there's a, a journalist who I I know pretty well, uh, whose name is Kate Lamb, L-A-M-B, who has been based in Jakarta for a very long time, has written for The Guardian and a whole bunch of other publications. Uh, it's it's amazing how little so many of us who follow China know about Indonesia. I mean, what a it's an amazing place. I've, I've, I haven't been there in, in many, many years, but I'm pretty sure I want to make a trip back. Uh, how long ago were you there, Julian? I was there in 2016. Okay, okay. It was great. It was really interesting. Yeah. Well, terrible traffic, though. Terrible traffic. Yeah. <laughs> Made no, China look so calm and, calm and relaxed. <laughs> That's not an easy, easy thing to do. Uh, okay, great. Uh, my recommendation is for a band. Uh, they're an instrumental kind of progressive metal band called Animals as Leaders. They're uh, led by this astonishingly great guitarist named Tosin Abasi. If you follow the whole world of guitar playing, you, you've heard of him. He's, you know, he's really kind of become quite a celebrity recently. He's an eight-string guitar player. Uh, an eight-string guitar, you know, it, it basically, you can do it all on there. There's sort of quite low notes. It's effectively a bass. So you, they've got two eight-strings and, and not a dedicated bass player. Uh, and it's it's a, a genre of progressive metal, a subgenre of progressive metal called Gent. D J E N T, which is an onomatopoeia for like the ching, 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 ching sound that uh, a distorted guitar makes if you sort of mute it. And it, it's a it's a great band. I mean, they're they're very musical. It's not just you know wanking. It's really some astonishing composition. Uh, check them out. They're all uh, really great players. And when you're there, you know, check out a lot of the other bands in that whole genre. Uh, if you if you really like that kind of uh, virtuosic instrumental playing, uh, check them out. So uh, that's it. Uh, Julian, once again, thanks so much. It was, uh, it was great to talk to you. I mean, you've really kind of uh, given us some terrific stuff to chew on. Okay, thank you. Thanks, for mu- thanks very much for having me. Yeah, well, I hope you, you're back soon. Jeremy, thanks as always, and great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Kaiser. Thanks, Julian. Yeah, this, take, take care. Thanks. Take care. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. It is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McRonald and by me. Special thanks this week to Jim Millward, who was kind enough to let us convert his dining room into a makeshift studio here in D.C. Uh, drop us an email at Cynica at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Saishin Cynica Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, and Talk for Talk. More great shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.